This episode of Intelligent Medicine is brought to you by Youthful Energy, providing you with a unique energy support of pure NT Factor. NT Factor is the only nutritional formula clinically proven to reduce fatigue, whatever the cause. Age, illness, or just being run down. NT Factor from Nutritional Therapeutics repairs damaged cells and restores healthy bacteria in your digestive tract. Clinical trials have shown NT Factor reduces fatigue by almost half, and it even reverses some symptoms of aging. I've been taking NT Factor for years. With a 45-day money-back guarantee, you have nothing to lose. To order, call 800-982-9158, 800-982-9158, or go to ntfactor.com. That's ntfactor.com. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. We're talking to uh, one of the co-authors of Brainwash. It's a new book uh, just out, Detox Your Mind for Clearer Thinking, Deeper Relationships, and Lasting Happiness. Uh, today's guest, Dr. Austin Perlmutter, uh, co-wrote the book with his dad, uh, Dr. David Perlmutter, uh, author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Grain Brain, and many other books. Uh, he's been a frequent guest uh, on the program, but I, I told uh, your dad, uh, Austin, that, uh, you know, I'm just tired of having him on. It's always great having him on, but, uh, you know, we got to like, got to switch it up, get a different perspective. So it's great having you on the program, uh, bringing your perspective, um, as a co-author of Brainwash. So thanks for joining us. I so appreciate you having me. Uh, okay. So you, uh, represent the new generation, uh, cause I'm approximately your dad's age. Uh, and so it, it is a full generation. Uh, things have come full circle uh, with your maturation and uh, your training in medicine and you're obtaining a board certification in internal medicine recently at uh, Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Uh, so, uh, you know, what's uh, the outlook for medicine 2020? Lots of doctors very dissatisfied, uh, doctors of uh, my generation uh, retiring early. They're burdened with... Uh, you know, all kinds of impositions, uh, regulatory changes, uh, reduction in their incomes because of, uh, you know, insurance companies are kind of cracking down on, uh, you know, what doctors can charge. Uh, there's more and more forms to fill out. And then there's electronic medical records, uh, you know, peering at a computer, uh, which for a lot of uh, doctors of my generation uh, is um, it, it's it's a game changer. It's just, you know. We find it uh, untenable uh, to have to uh, be responsive to uh, a computer rather than the patient who's sitting in front of us. So what's the deal? Well, so many things to talk about. Um, you know, I'm sure listeners of this podcast understand all too well that the current medical system isn't working for the patients, as evidenced by rates of chronic diseases, the fact that most of the treatments we give people for these chronic diseases don't do much of anything, and the fact that the healthcare system is progressively heading towards a major meltdown in costs. But what we don't talk about too much is the other side of this equation, which is how are providers doing? And, you know, you brought up so many good points as it relates to the fact that they're not really doing that well. Um, I wrote an article a little while back on a medical website called Doximity, where I was talking about some of these statistics, the fact that 27% of medical students and 28% of medical residents are suffering from depressive symptoms, the fact that somewhere between 40 and 50% of providers after their medical training are experiencing symptoms of burnout. And as you said, one of the central causes, or at least what physicians would say is one of the central causes of this burnout is 
the documentation piece, the fact that they're spending all of their time behind the screen typing out these notes. I think there are a couple of pieces to tease out of this uh, that I think are worth considering. One of them is when you consider how much time the average provider is spending uh, writing notes, documenting so that they can be properly reimbursed, making sure they get all their codes right so they don't get fined. And then the other side of this, which is the boxing in by reimbursement as far as what are the drugs that you can use. Mm-hmm. Um, they they virtually kind of wa- dictate to you, you know, so for example, I mean, you're holistically oriented. So uh, it would not be beyond reason for you to sit down with a patient in your practice, uh, spend 40 minutes with them. And at the end of that session, uh, with say a hypertensive patient, you know, you might use the code for hypertension. And at the end of that session, um, you don't click any of the boxes for medication. You know, they may give you options. You know, do you want a beta blocker? Do you want uh, an ACE inhibitor, an angiotensin receptor blocker, a diuretic? And you click none of the above. Um, they have the means to kind of audit you and say, Doc, well, you know, what are you doing? Are you shooting the breeze with, uh, you know, the patient? Were you talking about your golf game? You know, <laughs> uh, do something. That's absolutely right. And in a lot of larger practices, reimbursement is tethered to your prescribing the right drugs yep. given the person's constellation of symptoms. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you kind of got to ask at this point, where is the actual doctoring occurring, right? So they're telling you what you're supposed to do. You're spending the other half of your time documenting what you're supposed to do. And where is the actual interaction happening? The stuff that we as physicians love so much, which is getting to know the patient and getting to tailor a solution to their problem. Um, you think about the other side of this, which is our treatments don't work very well for treating the underlying disease. And it's not really surprising at that point that doctors are feeling so crummy about what they're doing. But I think this all starts with the general model of physician training, which is it teaches you that we have all the answers. If you just go through this rigmarole, you'll come out the other end with uh, a set of algorithms that will ensure you're able to help people, um, but never really looking at what is it that's going to give you a sustainable life of enjoyment uh, in the case where being a doctor is part of that, but to help uh, build up those wellness techniques that are necessary to sustain joy, sustain purpose in life. And as we discussed in the other half of this podcast, when you look at the factors that tie into people feeling good about themselves, having a good mood, uh, one of the major ones is the food that they eat. It's their level of nutrition, adequate nutrition. It's having a low level of inflammation in their body. But it also turns out to be getting outside once in a while, having good social networks, exercising once in a while, getting good sleep. And if you think about how medical training is structured, there's really no time for any of that. So mm-hmm. in essence, they're it teaching actually, you. I mean, it sort of teaches you how not to be a role model. It, be, it teaches you to become a, a pressured, uh, anxiety-ridden, uh, uh, sleep-deprived, uh, poor diet, uh, uh, exercise uh, uh you know, unable to exercise kind of person. You know? That's exactly it. And I'm not saying that you can't give somebody good advice, even if you don't follow it yourself. But it would seem like if you really want to be able to relate to the patient, it would be reasonable to say, hey, you need to change your diet. And I've thought about it. And here's how I've made it work for me, as opposed to what is usually the case, whereas we're lecturing overweight patients about what they need to do differently. But 
doing the same thing they're doing. And maybe we're lucky and our metabolism is enabling us to bypass that for a little while. But inside, we're having the same complications. All the, the glucose problems, all the visceral adipocyte deposition, that's happening in doctors too because honestly, we're all just eating the same chunk. So it's not super helpful for me as a provider to tell my patient to stop smoking if I'm smoking. It just it seems kind of hypocritical. It's not the most practical way to assume somebody else should do uh, a behavior. And yet, here's what we do. We tell them they need to do things differently. We blame them when they don't follow through without asking, why is it so hard for any of us to make these good choices? One of the reasons is the modern world is set up for us to make poor decisions. And unfortunately, that still gets back to the components of medical training, which is when we're eating hospital food, when we're not exercising, when we're not taking care of ourselves and getting enough sleep, our brains are wired for poor decisions, making it harder for us to follow through for ourselves and unfortunately, making it harder for us to relate to our patients and give them good advice. Indeed. You know, it's a vicious cycle and it perpetuates itself. Um, so uh, I attended medical school about 35 years ago. Uh, and at the time, uh, people entered medical school with a great sense of uh, idealism. Uh, I chaired a nutrition study group and, you know, we would routinely have uh, dozens and dozens of students uh, in the first few weeks of medical school. Then it got tough. Then people got pressured. It was exams. And then finally, we dispersed for the wards, you know, because the first couple of years is didactic. And then we start, you know, going into the clinics. And uh, that's when the sleep deprivation and the stress really mount. And by the end of about the third year, uh, there are about two or three of us showing up for uh, meetings to discuss the primacy of nutrition. It seems like medical training kind of militates against uh, the implementation of some of these great lifestyle uh, messages that you incorporate in your book, Brainwash. Is, is, is there any hope for some uh, turnaround that will channel uh, idealistic medical students towards careers where they actually embody these principles? Well, you know, I was recently giving some advice to a medical student who was going to residency, and we were talking about the relative ratio of primary care versus uh, inpatient care that she would get in training. I am a huge proponent of trying to take a step back from all of this, and for anyone who's going into medical training, but really anyone who is becoming an adult, to ask some important questions about what are they really trying to get out of life. And it could be that becoming a doctor is the right way to do that. I know some people who have always wanted to be doctors. They love every moment of it. They inhale the stress of medical school and exhale gratitude and joy. But that's not everyone. And so we've got to be sure that when we're recommending people go into the system or as people go into the system, they have an awareness of what it actually is. With that said, I think we can do a lot to improve the system itself. And one thing that I was heartened to see recently is that they're moving a certain test called the USMLE Step 1 test, which is arguably the most stressful thing mm -hmm. that any anyone has to do in it's medical like, training. Like passing it the defines bar. Right. I mean, what like, residency right. program you yeah. get into. It, it's kind of like that. I'd say it's even more stressful than that. Okay. Because uh, unlike the board exam where it's pass-fail, this is a test that is graded on a curve. So you're uh -huh. going to, based on your score, either match into your residency program of your dreams or perhaps have to do a residency that elsewhere <laughs> exactly and and so what they've recently done is moved to make this a pass fail test so i think there are interventions that are happening that are positive in addition what i'm seeing is a lot of programs developing wellness and resiliency mm -hmm. pro uh, wellness and resiliency programs which um 
is is good and bad. I think it's a, it's it's a bit good. of a band aid though, because if the if the whole process is inherently inhumane, you know, telling you to you know meditate or you know That's do some exactly yoga it. is like you know putting a, a band aid on a festering uh, sore. Yeah, I think that uh, you know resiliency. What does that mean? It means that basically they want people to be thicker skinned and here are the interventions we can give them so they tolerate what is objectively terrible. Mm -hmm. And wellness programs in large part seem to provide interventions for people who are at the end of their rope. So what they want is when you're starting to experience um, or when you're experiencing depression, let's say, or even worse, if you're having suicidal ideation, they want to have somebody there so that you have somebody to talk to. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. It's essential. But it's like looking at insulin for the diabetic instead of asking, well, what was going on when they're, oh, they were a little bit insulin resistant, mm-hmm. when their glucose was a little bit off, when their A1C was, I don't know, creeping up into the high fives as opposed to full-blown diabetes. So that's kind of the whole idea here is how can you make some preventive measures for medical training? And I think until we get outside of this idea of people have to work 80 to 100 hours a week because that's what everyone's always done and we can't imagine medicine without having you go through the gauntlet, there's not going to be a lot of change made. Did you personally, you know, during your residency, I mean, you have the background of uh, being the son of, you know, one of the foremost integrative physicians in the country. You know, let's tell it like it is, you know, Dr. David Perlmutter, you know, author of Grain Brain and, a, a, you know, a, a terrific uh functional medicine doctor. So you had that perspective. Did you, uh, during your residency, experience a a bit of a feeling of uh, alienation or or perhaps a feeling of irony, you know, when you saw, you know, the heroic medical interventions and in the back of your mind, you you knew, well, you know, maybe there's a better way, but I better shut up because, uh, you know, if I, you know, start spouting stuff about, you know, diet and supplements, uh, you know, I'm going to get a demerit. You know, my attendings will look askance at me, tell me to shut up. Ah, that's, that's a tough question to answer. Um, I guess the best way of answering this is yes. I, I came from this tradition uh, in that I, I grew up with my father around of understanding there were different ways of looking at medicine. And then I spent seven years doing traditional medical training and realizing there's so much about it that is absolutely wonderful. It's very smart people who are dedicated to helping patients get better. As it relates to acute conditions, they can do amazing, amazing things. And when I was in the ICU, when I was in the inpatient ward sometimes, when I was in even the outpatient clinic, there were these instances where we would diagnose something and fix something, and people would be so grateful, and then they would go about having a wonderful life. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the majority of the money we spend in medicine, the majority of the deaths, the majority of the morbidity is End of not related care, to those conditions. You know, that kind of thing. In those compressed uh, few months before people expire, you know, we actually expend about 70% of our medical resources, uh, you know, where the, the results aren't very satisfactory. They're very sort of uh, temporizing in terms yes. of forestalling the inevitable. Well, I think from a a philosophical perspective, we're doing a terrible job of discussing death as a society. Uh, We're we're clinging to life at the expense of enjoying it. And as that relates to the end of life, that means that we're doing everything we can to try to lengthen it as opposed to enjoying the moments we have with our friends, family, and otherwise. But but yes, we we have this system that prioritizes sick care instead of health care, all these things that 
functional medicine, integrative medicine state so well. On the other side of the equation, though, um, as much as I am a proponent of nutrition-based recommendations for people and individualizing that, you know, I don't think that's the whole picture either. And I think that there is so much that can be done if you sit somebody down with a functional provider, but that isn't going to get them the whole way there. And what I think we're missing in both of these cases is the meta view of what's driving people in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because as it relates to chronic diseases, um, you know, so much of it is the choices that we make over the decades we make them. And traditional medicine does a terrible job of connecting with people and understanding why they make the choices they do. Functional medicine, despite integrating multiple other components, still does a poor job of trying to understand why exactly people make choices. And I don't fault either of these two overall medical approaches because the truth is we haven't spent a lot of time and haven't really understand how people make choices over the last couple hundred years other than philosophizing about it. And now finally we're appreciating something that seems very simple but is so important to understand, which is that the choices we make are a reflection of our brains. So when you get a, an inflamed knee, um, that knee is going to be painful. It's going to be red. It's, it's not going to be uh, fun to bear weight. But you know, we look at then how can I do something to help the knee because these are symptoms of the knee problem, right? The joint pain. But when somebody is making poor choices, we don't say, well, maybe there's something going on in the brain. What's going on in the brain that we can then support, that we can make interventions to help? Mm -hmm. And we, we kind of know what these things are at this stage, or at least we're starting to get an understanding of that. And I think that just really shifts the whole paradigm so far upstream because it's not the, uh, as I said before, the insulin resistance and the high glucose before somebody develops diabetes. It's instead saying even that, mm -hmm. even the slightly elevated A1C is a reflection of a person's choices as they interface with their environment. So what if we instead looked at the brain, looked at how that wiring might be compromising their decision making, get outside of the whole blame paradigm of saying, oh, I'm going to blame you for poor decisions, or it's a moral failure because you don't have the willpower, and instead say that we can start making choices, we can start making lifestyle interventions to support the brain such that over time, your choices will become more in sync with what you actually care about. And so you're not always wrestling with yourself to try to force yourself to do the things you know you should do, but you just can't do anyway. It sounds like, uh, you know, in that manifesto that you just enunciated, you've carved out uh, uh, a potential career path for yourself that could actually take you forward uh, for decades. Because what you're talking about uh, is not merely you know, identifying, you know, which uh, nutritional supplements uh, can lower blood sugar. That's, I think, an interesting project. Uh, a lot of people doing that. But uh, looking at the translation of uh, all the knowledge we're gaining uh, to implementation uh, and effective transformation, you know, right? yep. and I think that's, uh, you know, a very, very um, kind of a deep reflection on, uh, you know, where we're going wrong in medicine, it, not just in conventional medicine, uh, but in fact, uh, you know, I think integrative medicine to some extent is, is guilty of that as well. Uh, because, you know, we have all these fancy paradigms and we have, you know, uh, keto diets and we have, uh, you know, low carb diets and, you know, various tools that we wield. Um, but getting patients to, uh, adhere to these, these programs and incorporate these in our, in their lifestyle, 
uh, and not just do it because, you know, doctor says I should do this. That's not going to work, right? That's exactly right. And something my dad and I have been saying a lot is you can have all of the knowledge on your bookshelf. You can have my dad's prior books on your bookshelf. You can have the best books by the best authors. It doesn't matter at all. And you can go to the doctor and the doctor will tell you, here's exactly what you need to do to lose weight, to feel better about yourself, to bring your blood pressure into a normal range. Who cares unless you're able to follow through on that? And so instead of talking about the decisions you need to make, let's talk about fixing the decision maker. Here's a quick hack that anyone listening can make in order to see what I'm talking about. We all know that when we're hungry, it's not a good time to go grocery shopping. (laughs) Now, why is that? It's because statistically speaking, you're more likely to buy more groceries. You're more likely to buy junk food. There are data to support this, but we already know it. So what we're saying is the state of our bodies, right, the physiologic state of our bodies, in this case, let's say a slightly higher ghrelin level, is going to impact the way that we perceive the world, the way that we make choices. So as an intervention, you could say, if I want to eat healthier food, what I actually need to do is plan my grocery shopping after I've eaten. It sounds so straightforward, Mm -hmm. but that is only one small thing that you can do in You incorporate that into a much larger paradigm of these things that we know affect decision making, then you're basically planning to bridge the gap between the self you want to be and the self you are now. You are having empathy for your future self because you're not going to have to deal with the outcomes of poor choices as often. So it's, it's trying to take the bigger picture perspective. And, you know, I like to make references to behavioral economics because I think that it, it puts it so so clear, or it puts into such clear contrast this dichotomy, which is economists believe that humans are purely rational, that they're always going to make the more rational choice to, let's say, optimize for profit. Clearly, that is not the way that humans operate. And so they've been able to figure out all of these cognitive biases that show how humans deviate from this rational ideal. And I think it's time we take that idea and bring it into medicine Hmm. with the The concept being humans are not rational and humans are not going to always make good choices, Mm -hmm. but we don't blame them for that. We assume that's the baseline and instead we plan for that in ways that are going to be synchronized with the individual to assist them to make better choices such that given compounding interest, over time they're going to reach their outcomes a lot more often than as if we treated them the way we usually do, which is a patient is rational, they just need the information so that they can know that, you know, they should not eat donuts. Literally, everybody knows that donuts are bad for them, but we do it anyway. So it's time to move forward. Yeah. Um, well, from your standpoint, as, uh, you know, recently uh, completing your internal medicine training, uh, you know, have a long career ahead of you. Um, and, you know, you're familiar with uh, conventional medicine. You're familiar with uh, integrative medicine. Um where do you see medicine going in, in the next few decades? Do you think uh, it's going to reach a point where it, it crashes and burns and then, uh, you know, natural therapies will come to the rescue to, to save our medical system and save our populace? Uh, or do you think a more rational process will occur, you know, where we'll recognize that uh, it's more important to uh, reform medicine and bring some of these therapies on board? Or do we have to reach a, a crisis point before we before we adopt some of these methods? Well, those are all good options, and I don't have the future site to be able to say 
that one of those will certainly happen. Um, I would say the thing that I'm most optimistic about right now is the idea that we can use big data and artificial intelligence to individualize therapeutic recommendations. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, um, we'll be able to actually bypass some of the biggest problems with nutrition recommendations, which is that they're not universally applicable and be able to help people to integrate the right nutrition or the right supplements or the right amount of, let's say, uh, sunlight exposure even to optimize their health. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the, the downside of this, um, there was an interesting report that came out not too long ago, which predicted how long it would take before jobs were uh, taken over by computers, you know, th thinking about long distance truck drivers, one that will be likely taken over in the near future. But it's funny, during medical training, so much of our time was spent memorizing algorithms, or at least knowing where to find these algorithms. And that is a, uh, you know, kind of an update on the more traditional process of decades, even let's say centuries ago. But it used to be there were only a couple of things you could do in a given situation, especially as it related to pharmaceuticals. You could, let's say, give aspirin or penicillin, or you could not do that. And now there are thousands and thousands of drugs. And the idea that any doctor is going to know all of them, let alone all their side effects and their mechanisms of action, is preposterous. We're going to need to uh, to leverage uh, machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence uh, to help us uh, make choices. I mean, radiologists are already uh, doing that. I mean, it's not like it's, uh, you know, we're supplanting uh, radiologists with uh, robots. Uh, but uh, Well, not yet. Yeah, that may happen. That may be a field that ultimately becomes obsolete, but uh, it's assisting them, guiding them towards the right decisions. I, I will share with you uh, that I just wrote a, a, a newsletter article uh, based on an article that appeared in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Now that you completed your residency program, you may actually have an opportunity to read sometimes. <laughs> it's uh, February uh, 2020, and the title of the article is, it's actually uh, alludes to what you're talking about. Modeling of an integrative prototype based on genetic, phenotypic, and environmental information for personalized prescription of energy-restricted diets in overweight, overweight and obese subjects. And what they did is they looked at two basic types of diets. One is a, a high-protein diet, and the other is a low-fat diet. I mean, they could have been a little more ambitious looking at uh, any number of diets, you know, keto diet, paleo diet, uh, etc. But they just, you know, for the sake of the study, they took kind of two simple diet types. And they used genetic information, personal information, and they crunched the data. And they found that this was actually a predictive model. They could actually steer people to the right diet by virtue of their genetics. Now, this is not yet ready for prime time. And I don't know of any commercial tests that uh, deliver... Uh, infallible information, although many tests purport to do that. They don't really do that. Uh, but I think, you know, this, uh, you know, is an exciting development and uh, technology is going to help us uh, guide patients to better decisions. The question will be, you know, will they, will they uh, implement those uh, those programs? And that's, I think, you know, your focus. Right. I, I think it's going to require years and years of work before any large-scale insurer is willing to cover this, or more importantly, until the average provider is going to have the time to be able to implement this type of data. But, you know, you talk about dietary recommendations and how challenging it is to either get people to stick to them in the first place or for them to see benefit. And if you could group people based on which dietary pattern is best for them, 
maybe we wouldn't have everyone yelling at each other about why carnivore and vegan diets are the best thing that's ever happened. And we could say there may be people for whom uh, a dietary trend closer to one of those two extremes is best. And it's not just this universal absolute where everyone should be eating all plants all the time or everyone should be eating all meat all the time. Yeah. Personalized nutrition is, uh, I think, the wave of the future. Uh, well, great. You know, it's most reassuring uh, to know that um, young physicians like you are coming to the fore with, uh, you know, great training, great skills, uh, but also the right orientation um, to um, to really affect change in a, in a positive way and, you know, not just uh, dish uh, ever more expensive medications, uh, ever more invasive uh, therapies uh, that um, – you know, may uh, may seem plausible, but ultimately don't benefit uh, the well-being of patients. So great stuff. The book is Brainwash, Detox Your Mind for Clearer Thinking, Deeper Relationships, and Lasting Happiness. Uh, congratulations on your collaboration with your dad, David Perlmutter. Thank you. Uh, it's really nice having you as a guest on, on Intelligent Medicine. That's Austin Perlmutter, MD. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. As an Intelligent Medicine listener, you know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. But vetting your sources and tracking down the exact products you need can be a hassle. That's why I'm inviting you to browse my online supplement dispensary at drhoffmanstore.com. We stock only the highest quality supplements, some of which are very hard to find elsewhere. The very same supplements I prescribe to my patients and take myself. My specially curated professional-grade supplements are fulfilled via the Fullscript network. Fullscript is the safest and most convenient way to purchase my medical-grade supplements. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA-compliant, and offers world-class support. Just go to drhoffmanstore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll also receive free shipping on all of your store orders. That's drhoffmanstore.com. drhoffmanstore.com.